This is a Zagland Original Podcast. Today on the Zachary and Peaches Show. Our three for Halloween continues with a visit to Blythe Hollow. We'll discuss Paranorman and its coming-of-age story about a boy who tossed a ghost and is tasked with ending his town's curse. And what's going on at the sofa of ITVs this morning? Adrian talks about what's next for the embattled UK daytime program following the exit of its two most popular presenters. All coming up this week, October 17th, 2023. Connecting from Orlando and Baltimore, it's all about animation, autism, and everything else. This is the Zachary and Peaches Show with Adrian Mata and Emma Settles. Welcome to the Zachary and Peaches Show, folks. I'm Adrian Mata. And I'm Emma Settles. And how has uh, how has your life been uh, since uh, last week, Emma? Things have been definitely going a little bit better. Um, at the same token, though, I've still been very busy. Um, always, always on my toes. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I've been working on a lot of new artwork. Um, you know this, of course, and as well as anybody who follows me on uh, DeviantArt for Affinity or Instagram. Um, I'm currently working on a project that I do every year called Draw the Ween, and it is actually a series of prompts, like you know, like Inktober or Goretober or something, you know, like those kinds of prompts. Um, but it's all like Halloween themed, and I've been a follower of this one person's prompt list for the past I would say maybe about six or something years um, so yeah that being said this is like my my sixth year or something doing Halloween, and like my fourth year I think uh trying to go all the way through the calendar so I've been working on that working on that um but in addition to that I've also been working on a lot of paintings and a lot of felt masks and a few fursuit pre-mades that I'm planning on selling. Uh, one of which is up on my Instagram currently. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I've been I've been very busy. I've been working on a lot of art, and I've also submitted to another film festival. Um, so yeah, personalities hopefully will be screened at another festival. Um, because uh, I've only submitted it to three, I believe, one of which it got rejected from. But the other one, it won a kudos award, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, and so thank you to the Documentaries Without Borders Festival for, for that. That was very wonderful. Um, so, yeah, hopefully I will uh, get a feature in the other festival that I submitted to, even if it's not an award. Um, at least I was selected, which would be an honor. Or I, I haven't been yet, but hopefully I will be. Um, but yeah, there's that. And then I've also been working on a lot of stuff that I hope to sell in person at my first craft fair, which will be at one of my old stomping grounds. Um, the school that I went to uh, for eighth grade. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. And then I'll eventually list everything that I don't sell um, from that craft fair up on my Etsy but again that'll be that's a little ways away from now anyway um that festival is happening in December so yeah that being said I at least have a, a little bit of time to 
continue to make more artwork and stuff like that for it. But I've been uh, I've been working hard on some paintings. I finished one of them today. I'm having I'm another one that's about three fourths of the way done, and then two more that are about halfway done. Um. So yeah, needless to say, I've been I've been I've been keeping busy. Um. Yeah, things have things have been going okay. I've been I'm hanging in there, and I uh, yeah, things are things are things are pretty good. How about you, Adrian? Had another uh, nice week at Universal Orlando Resort uh, over at Islands of Adventure. Um, nothing too. Uh, I I don't think anything too impressive to um, to say about it, other than uh, well. Number one, had a little bit of a spell over during the Marvel character dinner on Thursday. Um, and uh, number two, I had to do, of course, the usual um, uh, three uh, once every three months uh, training on alcohol serving and uh, and uh, money handling and whatnot. So, um, so there is that. Uh, yesterday, uh, yesterday, uh, before we recorded this program or this podcast, rather. Uh, I worked at the um, I worked at the Auntie Anne's uh, stand, or rather the Auntie Anne's stall um, over at the uh, Marvel Marvel Superhero Island area, and it was uh, I think appeared to my first time around. I think on uh, I think in January when I was working like on a seasonal basis for Universal the first time around, um, it was kind of almost a chill. It was kind of almost a bit of a chill uh, environment, actually, a little bit of a chill vibe, actually, and. Uh, and I got through it okay. Um, the only issue I had was uh, um, was uh, kind of really, you know, waiting for somebody to cover me over, like right around the time I was supposed to clock out. And so I kind of decided, let I'll just wait till like around uh, four o'clock to uh, to uh, clock out. And then uh, and then uh, finally, at least somebody was able to cover me for uh, for at least another a couple of minutes. So I was able to go. It would clock out, but not before I had to do the uh, the alcohol handling training, and alcohol serving training, and whatnot. So, um, so a bit of a bit of an interesting week. Uh, nothing too, um, nothing too, um, in, uh, nothing too outstanding, I would say, from from that particular week. Um, I, all, other than that, um, uh, Universal Orlando's uh, Halloween Horror Nights is still going on until November 4th. Uh, tickets and details available at UniversalOrlando.com if you're interested. And of course, uh, don't go alone. Bring your friends. Bring your friends along for uh, for um, for of course. Uh, I think Orlando's uh, longest running Halloween experience. And uh, other than and then uh, other than that, um, I think that's really about it. So um, yeah. Pretty much about Again, it. Still very jealous. <laughs> uh, one of these days, I will go to Halloween Horror Nights, or I'll go back to uh, I'll go back to Eastern State or something. But you know, um, this this year seems like it's going to be a little bit low key. But at the same token, though, at least I'm going to have a friend hopefully um, come over uh, close to Halloween, not the day of, but. Um, a few days before, so that should be really nice. Um, but yeah, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, still, just the fact that you have an opportunity to even just be around the the event is is it's it's just cool. 
Yeah, um, might not, it might not be for me, but you know, if anybody's interested in going, you know, please go. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, some housekeeping notes to take care of. We have two this week. Uh, first off, there is a there is an online art book uh, on Nimona um, called The Art of Nimona, and it's available to view for free at artofnimona.com. We'll put a link to it in the description of this episode. And it's, a ver- and it's a very interesting 300-page dive into the stylistic and artistic choices uh, made during the production of this um, this great movie. Uh, that being said, if you have not listened to our Nimona episode from last season, please go ahead and listen to it. Uh, uh, it's worth a good uh, listening to as well. And uh, second of all, um, we talked about Kubo and the Two Strings before uh, as well on the podcast. And again, if you have not listened to that episode, please go listen to it. Uh, but the voice of Kubo himself, Art Parkinson, is now the owner of a coffee shop in Derry in the UK called The Coffee Tree. It was formerly run by his parents, and of course, um, you know, of course, with the uh, with the health issues that his uh, father is currently dealing with, um, uh, Art has now taken on ownership and operation of this coffee shop uh, over there. So we wish him the very best in uh, in um, in serving the uh, the uh, customers and, of course, the visitors uh, around the region. That story again, though, uh, Kubo is now running a coffee shop in England. So um, here you go. Ah, well, I wish Art the best of luck with all of that. Yeah, and, uh, it just kind of makes me wonder, you know, kind of makes me wonder, though, how would how would Kubo, you know, run a coffee shop or even like a cafe of some sort? Because I kind of imagine it being a little bit like a like a cafe slash bakery, kind of like a Kind of like this, uh, this cafe and bakery that I visited called uh, Tous Les Jours. It's actually a chain of of uh, French inspired Asian bakery and ca- bakeries and cafes across the world, and with a few locations in the U.S. But I kind of wonder how Cuba would go, kind of go about with that. I mean, with the, I mean, you know, with this, I mean, with the bunch of store, with the storytelling abilities that he has, he could probably do like some, um, probably some performances, like maybe daily or on the weekends or. Uh, aside from running the coffee shop, in fact, you're like inside the coffee shop. So I kind of wonder, that's what, that's what I'm thinking. No, I mean, that's, that's a cute kind of question to ask yourself, really. I mean, I, I just, it, modern, modern AUs are a lot of fun as, with characters like Kubo, especially. So that being said, thinking about, you know, if this opportunity was placed into his lap, you know, him running a cafe, I just think it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's just a, it's it's a cute thing to ponder. And as you said, he would pro- knowing Kubo, I feel like he would definitely have some kind of opportunity for artists and musicians to you know display their work and to perform, as well as him doing performances himself. Um, so yeah, that being said, I think it's a really cute little prospect. In fact, I'm actually imagining all of the Leica kids, you know, coming together and either you know whether or not they work at the place or not oh that would be my god yes but they could either be you know working there or they could frequent the place and you know kubo would probably you know know uh Coraline's order by heart and you know all <laughs> of her like you know all of the stuff that she would make i imagine her being an artist too would you know go in go in his little gallery space and you know, I could I could see Norman sitting in a corner with a laptop, either you know working on an assignment or gaming, and you know sipping on some coffee or hot chocolate or something like that. And Eggs comes in and orders 
probably like a like an egg croissant or something like that because of the name. Um, or just ordered a whole bunch of stuff to go because of all the box trolls he has to feed. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a cute idea. It's a really cute, really charming little idea. And I, I'm glad you mentioned it because it's just, it's kind of, it's like, it's like brain popcorn thinking about all of these cute little AUs, especially because, you know, in sort of like the height of, you know, the like a fandom's popularity back in around Kubo's release and, and even before that with probably, you know, with Paranorman's release, um, back in 2012 and 2016, respectively, um, yeah, you, you'd see a lot of crossover fan art, all the Leica kids just kind of hanging out. And I just, I mean, Leica themselves did a lot of stuff like that, you know, having photos of all of their past puppets interacting. And just the fact that they, they played on those AUs in the fan art that they saw, I think, was is really charming and it makes me feel good. Um, I mean, it just, it just proves to you that Leica really cares about their fan base, at least to, to an, an extent. Um, and they want to continue to use their puppets any way that they can, even if the films have, you know, been finished. So, yeah, that being said, I think, uh, I think that's a very cute little question that you brought up, and I'm glad you did, because it's, it's giving me I, some ideas. <laughs> Let's just say that. Yeah, I kind of wonder what uh, Missing Link would play into this. I wonder, I kind of wonder how the characters from there would play into that. Maybe Sir Lionel Frost owns owns the coffee shop. Maybe, I, I don't, I'm not really sure. I'm not even sure. Other than that, I'm not sure how uh, Susan Link or even uh, Adelina would even, you know, play into the, play into this little thing that we've got going on right now. So. Susan's the, Susan, Susan Link is the, uh. He also makes the coffee. <laughs> yeah, but it's like yeah, but imagine like the size of the coffee shop though. I can't imagine it being being very big to um uh to accommodate uh, his size there. So I'm not even sure Probably. how he would even fit. Counterpoint: It isn't big enough, and he's constantly hunched over. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy! Don't love the... Yeah. Throw in the Mona in there too, since I talked about the art of the Mona book there. So, uh. Mona comes and, uh, performs, uh, every, every other weekend. Kubo and Nimona are buddies. <laughs> mm. If you, um, well, in case you uh, kind of missed, uh, kind of missed, uh, I think our, uh, Kubo episode, we kind of, I, we kind of, I kind of made light of my obsession with Nimona. And, uh, and, uh, I think at that point, I think. At that point of that episode, I think before we even got to the Kubo discussion, um, you you said that now I know what my Christmas present is going to be this year. So now, I mean, we're in October now. You want to, um, you want to like, you want to revise that? You want to go back and revisit that idea, or or you want to keep that a little surprise? Let's just say I, I'm getting more ideas now that we've had this conversation, but um, I will definitely say that no. Um, I'm not revising the idea. Uh, well, maybe add, maybe adding on to it, but not like changing my mind completely. Like, no, I, I want to do something related to both Kubo and Nimona. Um, for you, for my, uh, Draw Sember series, which, uh, initially I was like, mm, do I want to do Draw Sember this year? And then I realized, you know, thought to myself, yeah, I want to do Draw Sember this year. I always do Draw Sember. Um, 
you know, if it, as I said before in our past episode about something completely about, uh, <laughs> I think it was the PSL. Um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So that's kind of been, uh, <laughs> kind of been my motto, I suppose, for a little while. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not really gonna. Maybe I'll edit the idea a little bit, but it's it's still at the very least going to contain Kubo and Nimona. So uh, keep an eye out for that once the holidays roll around. Of course. Uh, we got a good show. <laughs> oh my god, I'm sorry. We got a good show uh, this week here. We're going to be talking about uh, Paranorman, as we kind of alluded to in, um, of course, during this segment here. And uh, we're also going to get into a bit of uncharted territory, a bit of tabloidish vibe. Um, I think a little bit, uh, I think, might not be appropriate, I think, considering the, the past couple of FCDs that we have done, but it's something that I've kind of been cautiously wanting to dive into. We're going to be talking about uh, what's been going on at the sofa at ITV's This Morning program. That's going to be later on in the program. But for right now, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more of the Zachary and Peaches Show. Next on the Zachary and Peaches Show. Your three for Halloween continues with a visit to Blythe Hollow. Adrian and Emma discuss Paranorman, its coming-of-age storyline, and the themes and messaging it shares along the way. And later, it's been a rough year at the sofa of ITV's This Morning. Adrian talks about what's next for the embattled UK daytime program after the departures of Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby. Coming up after the break. The Zachary and Peaches Show, where we always feature animation, autism, and everything else. And on November 21st, it'll be your turn to contribute to the discussion. Metal. The fan request episode is coming. Submit your discussion ideas today to Peaches at gmail.com. Then listen to the Zachary and Peaches Show on November 21st to hear your suggestions being discussed. Adrian here. Stay tuned for this week's question at the end of the next segment. Spotify listeners can reply to it through the platform's own Q&A feature on their mobile devices. You can also respond through your DeviantArt account at this episode's recap entry on my profile at AdrianMata26. Or you can reply or reblock this episode's entry through your Tumblr account from my profile under the same handle. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Divergent, in-depth, unique. You're listening to the Zachary and Peaches Show. We are back with the Zachary and Peaches Show alongside Emma Settles. I'm Adrian Monta, and we are visiting 
Blythe Hollow. Well, well, not, well, not quite paying a visit to Blythe Hollow, but we are visiting. We're kind of uh, virtually visiting uh, Blythe Hollow um, to discuss about uh, like a 2012. I guess you could say a coming of age zombie film. Hmm. It's it's called Paranorman. So yeah. Anyway, uh, Adrian, as we always do on the Zachary and Pages show, why don't you give our lovely audience a little crash course in Paranorman? I thought you had a little bit more to say there before we uh, started there, but um, all right, let's let's do this. Uh, Norman Babcock is a young boy who lives in the Massachusetts town of Blythe Hollow. He also happens to be able to talk to ghosts. Emotionally isolated from his parents and looked down upon by other students at school, Norman is tasked with ending a 300-year-old curse upon his town. But at sundown, a zombie apocalypse ensues, and soon he and his companions, school bully Alvin, Norman's friend Neil, his older sister Courtney, and Neil's older gay brother Mitch must find a way to finish the ritual to end the curse bestowed upon by a witch from three centuries ago. And that's Paranorman for you in a nutshell. <laughs> As I try to um, summarize there, but uh, let's start uh, Let's start with the fact that this is a stop-motion zombie film, and uh, in a way it's more like a... You uh, We kind of said, uh, I think during the break there, um, you said it was kind of like a love letter and a bit of a nice pair, and a bit of a nice parody of the zombie film subgenre. So um so what what made it such a nuanced take on that? Yeah, I mean I I think one of the really interesting things about Paranorman is that like as you said, it's absolutely a zombie film and it's absolutely a quote unquote, you know, kid fa- kid family slash uh kid slash family friendly horror film. Horror in quotes obviously, but um, you know, lump it together with, uh, you know, Corpse Bride, Nightmare Before Christmas, Coraline, Hocus Pocus, like even in some ways, just a Halloween movie, basically. Um, just anything with, you know, slightly spookier themes that is still appropriate enough for families, um, and with, with kids. So, you know, that being said... Even though, it, I mean, it, it, not, it's not only that, though, as I said, it also, as you mentioned, it, it also lumps together with sort of like the coming of age film as well. Because, I mean, Norman is about 11 years old uh, in the movie, which is also funny because I was 11 years old when Paranorman was released, <laughs> which is strange to think about. Um, but I, I guess kind of random little thing here, but Norman and I would be, uh, are, are both the same age now. We're both 22 years old, if, if that's how, you know, if Norman was a real person and he aged like a real person. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's just a random little tidbit there. I guess back to the, back to the main point here. Um, all that aside. But, you know... Normally, when you think of zombie films, you kind of don't really lump them in with coming-of-age films. Um, at least in, in the traditional sense of, you know, a, a kid character, you know, goes through trials and, you know, becomes triumphant in the end and um, learns, you know, very valuable lessons about growing up and about life and, you know, all of that kind of stuff along the way. 
and again, in the more traditional sense of, you know, a dictionary definition coming of age film. But, you know, that being said, I think Paranorman, one of the reasons why it is so nuanced, at least in my opinion, is that it lumps these two very, unlike, very almost strange um, combination of film genres together, all while doing it in a stop motion medium. Which is, I mean, of course, it's like a shtick, which is, you know, absolutely fair. And, again, I'm happy that they, they stuck with it. Um, especially after their previous venture, ventures, plural, again, if you count, uh, you count Corpse Bride. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, again, it's just been... This this movie is just it, it's it's so fascinating because of the fact that it just it as I said before it is such a love letter to the classic coming of age film and definitely the classic zombie film and just horror movies in general especially you know really old campy horror movies but at the same token though it also kind of pokes fun at them in some ways not you know in a in a in a mean sort of way more of like a you know. In, in a very loving kind of way. So it's it's a parody, but it's also a love letter, which is, I think, one of my favorite kinds of... Uh, my favorite kinds of parodies is the affectionate parody. Um, but yeah, Paranormal can absolutely be classified as such. And I think another reason why you could definitely classify it as being an affectionate parody is because of the fact that... I mean, if you really think about Alvin... Mitch and Courtney, at the very least, maybe even Norman can kind of be lumped into this as well. But each of the characters kind of fits around some sort of like you know traditional horror movie victim archetype. <laughs> um, you know Norman and Neil in some ways, you know, being more of the uh, Norman being the, the cautious type, you know, warning people that you know this thing is going to happen but unfortunately it isn't listened to neil is kind of the optimist character uh courtney is very much that stereotypical popular girl she's a cheerleader um she thinks she's all that in a bag of chips <laughs> uh so yeah very full of herself in some ways and of course you know butts heads with her little brother norman um as, you know, to be expected with siblings, especially with one of a relatively large age gap. Um, not large, but somewhat sizable age gap, considering the fact that Courtney's about maybe 16 or 17 and Norman's 11. So, yeah, even still, there's, there's, there's still a, def a definite difference uh, in age between them. So, in addition to personality and interests and all of that, too, so that creates a, a further disconnect between them. Um, and then, you know, uh, Alvin, of course, is the typical, is your typical bully, meathead kind of bully character. Um, <laughs> definitely more of the, the bronze, the brawn than the brains, but not really, not really much brawn either. Uh, I guess a similar thing can be said about Mitch, except Mitch is Mitch is a relatively nice character, but at the same token, though, he kind of 
he, he kind of doesn't really have that many, <laughs> uh, a lot of brain cells either. <laughs> and he can also be described as being like your stereotypical jock kind of character because, you know, he's a football player and he's, uh, yeah, he, he, he definitely plays into a lot of, a lot of those high school stereotype archetypal football player <laughs> in some ways. Um, so yeah, that being said, it's, it takes all of these different tropes that are definitely present in a lot of horror movies and they combine them all together in one space and force them all to sort of work together. Like, honestly, I couldn't have thought of a more ill-equipped group of people to prevent the zombie apocalypse than Norman and his ragtag team of misfits. <laughs> I mean, what you've got, you've got the the quote unquote weird kids. Um, you got the weird kid who speaks to ghosts. You have who who basically didn't want to be lumped into this mess anyway. This was kind of handed to him because it's a it's a family uh, family tradition to ward off the witch's curse because his uncle uh, before his uncle passed away used to. You know, be the one to do it every year. Uh, and then it was kind of bequeathed to Norman in order to do it, you know, for him in order to pre prevent this from happening again. Um, or just happening in general. Uh, and then, you know, so again, you have the, the one kid, the nice kid who unfortunately no one likes. You have the second nice kid that unfortunately no one likes, who's just... A big ray of sunshine has a lunchbox with a kitten on it and irritable, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, Neil's words, not mine. <laughs> um, you have Courtney, of course. You have a cheerleader. You have a football player. And then you have a stereotypical bully character who constantly was the one who was responsible for making fun of the quote-unquote, kid that nobody likes. <laughs> so, that being said, no one is, and, and, you know, they're all, at the, they're, at the youngest, they're, you know, they're, they're a variety of different ages, but they're basically, like, a bunch of 11 and 12-year-olds and a bunch of, like, 16 and 17-year-olds. <laughs> and they're all trying to stop the zombie apocalypse from happening, and they don't know what exactly to do, because... Uncle Prendergast barely gave Norman any true direction in order to prevent it other than read from this book, which the reason why he was confused about it is because it's a book of fairy tales. That's a actually important detail later. Um, but yeah, he's, Norman said at best, you know, he was expecting some kind of spell or incantation or just some, you know, something more... Stereotypical in order to prevent the zombie apocalypse from happening. Not the not not a book about Sleeping Beauty. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. That being said, they're all kind of fumbling around in the dark awkwardly in order to try to prevent this from happening. Um, and of course, they're successful. But you know, at, at the exact same time, they yeah. As I said, they're all super ill prepared, which again, I feel like also plays into, you know, the stereotypical horror movie sort of victim paradigm as well, because, you know, 
think about it, the killer is, or, you know, monster or whatever the case is, is always, you know, ten steps ahead of their victims. And, you know, in a, a traditional horror movie sense, people like Norman and his, again, as I keep saying, ragtag team of misfits would, you know, obviously fit on that list somewhere. Um, but they all, you know, they all survive and they all prevent this from happening. Uh, so, again, props to all of them. <laughs> Congrats. Um, but, I mean, Norman's ultimately the one who who pulls the plug on everything and, and actually confronts the quote-unquote witch uh, who had, was said to have cursed the town. But, yeah, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, yeah, that being said, as I, as I keep saying, I think this movie just does such a good job at both, you know, saying how much they adore this genre of film and skirting stereotypes, but also fully embracing them as well, which I think is is really neat because it's it's basically just a modern day campy zombie movie and i just absolutely love that there's not really a true handbook uh like a true handbook on how to handle a zombie apocalypse let alone try to prevent it so i mean you got you got that you got that going on let's dive into well let's not dive into uh let's uh let's go on to uh mitch here one of the uh ragtag um one of the uh, misfits in this ragtag team here uh the fact that he is a uh, he's kind of really the uh not only the jock out of the group but also the gay friend out of the group as well uh, so uh what so what kind of representation did he bring to the table and especially this being you know considering this film was released in 2012 and of course being a family movie and all that yeah i mean i ultimately again this is again coming from a perspective as an lgbtq plus person of course i'm i'm not a gay man um but at the same token, though, I'm, I'm at very least providing my own perspective uh, as a member of the queer community into this, too. I mean, at least from a personal perspective, I don't think Mitch being gay was all that groundbreaking in, this, in the sense of the, the film itself. I think, you know, he, he didn't really provide, you know, the kind of... You know, in a stereotypical sense, I guess, you know, the, the sense of, of pride and, you know, the pride, the power, the joy, you know, of, say, watching a character like Ballister Boldheart or Nimona on screen. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't that kind of character, but he wasn't supposed to be that kind of character. But what I think that was rather groundbreaking and fascinating is, A... You know, the fact that they revealed him, they revealed that he was gay in a way that I think was, I think it was really, it was really interesting because it, it, I think it, ex a, it explained a lot about his character because Courtney was constantly flirting with him the entire night, even though they were being pursued by zombies. Uh, so it's it sort of, at the very least, it explained his sort of disdain towards her besides the fact that she was obviously being ridiculously clingy um and <laughs> not not handsy in like the perverted sense but most of the time she just had her hands like on on his shoulders or on his chest or just around him she was she was standing very close to him a lot so obviously Courtney was being a little bit of a, a space invader 
but I guess it also provides another layer of explanation as to why he possibly wasn't, you know, um, returning some of her advances. But, you know, I, I think ultimately, not only I think it, it offered some sort of explanation to, you know, his character, but I think it was also just something that it was done in a way that I think it, it made a lot of sense, not only because of, you know, his personality and his reaction to Courtney, but at the same token, though, it, the the reveal I think was done in a way that was that was fascinating because he mentions in a, a side comment I suppose, you know Courtney ultimately asks him out and he's like, yeah, you know what, sure, can I bring my boyfriend? He's a you know if if you go to the if you go to the movies he's a he's a chick flick nut you know you'll you'll you you'd like him, so I mean at the very least he was sort of you know offering opportunity to to be friends too which i think speaks a lot on his character too because he even though he definitely called norman weird on a couple of occasions he never really outright bullied him either so i i think it it speaks to the fact that he's got a heart and he wants to you know if, if courtney wants to be in his life you know he just wants to lay some ground rules and like, hey, I'm in a committed relationship and I'm also gay. So that being said, here's, you know, the reason why I didn't respond to your flirting as, uh, you know, in the way that you thought. But if, I mean, again, if anything, I think just the fact that we have a gay character in a family film from 2012, I think is just, I think it's just, it's cool. I mean, again, it's not super super groundbreaking and it's not like it, i mean it's not groundbreaking in the traditional sense as i said but it is groundbreaking the fact that at the very least we had a character who was queer and what ultimately wasn't a stereotype in that sense he was a stereotypical jock but he wasn't a stereotypical gay guy um and at the same token, he was also just, yeah, he was treated normally, just like anyone else. I mean, again, all the characters in the movie are a little bit odd as it is. <laughs> but at the, at the same token, though, he was treated like a human being, and he was given the same amount of respect as pretty much any of the other characters in the film. So if anything, it was just, I think it was just, it's it's neat that we had an opportunity to have at least some level of representation back in 2012 when it, it wasn't quite as common to have a queer character be present in children's media especially speaking uh speaking of you know treating human beings with respect it's kind of sad and it's kind of sad that uh you know the supposed witch uh, in this film, uh, Aggie um, was not treated with that kind of res with that with that kind of respect that she had here. So let's talk about well, let's talk about her character for a bit here. She kind of really, you know, she was kind of like the uh, the same person as uh, Norman is. Uh, you know, you know, she she being able to um, talk to ghosts and all that, but the but the town kind of really ostracized her and eventually um, pretty much um, did away with her. And so uh, now, now as a ghost, you know, uh, she's kind of she's kind of haunted the town for like uh, you know for three centuries, and uh, and so what about her character, you know, that uh, you know 
made it made it like a whole like the like a, such a core part of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think another reveal that we ultimately get in the movie is the fact that this supposed witch this you know the witch's you hear it all the time the witch's curse you know witch's ghost witch 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 you know literally it's it's everywhere in the culture of Blythe Hollow it's basically like uh Salem light <laughs> or maybe Salem extra Salem extra I don't know <laughs> um but yeah I I mean that being said you know depictions of witches and depictions of witches especially in like the very the very stereotypical sense are just a part of Blythe Hollow culture and they're constant it's it's a constant motif and theme throughout the movie but again you see all these depictions of like you know the, the traditional witch However, the reveal is that this witch, so to speak, is not a traditional one. And at the, you know, as well as the fact that she really isn't truly a witch at all, if you think about it. Maybe to a degree she is because of it. But I'll, I'll get into more of that a little bit later. But she's not... You know, in again, in the traditional sense. Um, ultimately, again, as it's revealed in the film, that Aggie is about like an uh, is an eleven year old kid, and so that being said, she is exactly Norman's age, and it's also revealed that indirectly, at the very least, that they're cousins. Um, her her last name is Prendergast. And again, if you remember indirectly, um, Norman's uncle also shares the same last name as her. And I guess you can sort of speculate that maybe Norman's, um, maybe Norman's mother, because it, it was revealed that you know he he's Uncle Prendergast was a was a relative on Norman's mother's side. Yeah, maybe his mother had that maiden name. So, yeah, that being said, the, literally the Prendergast bloodline runs through the Babcock family. And, I, I, again, I think that's just a fascinating detail that they're related, um, and as it is. But at the same token, though, I guess if, if you really want to discuss specifically about Aggie and about, you know, her level of importance to the story is... Even though we see these constant representations, even during the whole zombie apocalypse thing, you know, in the clouds, in the landscape, in, you know, little ways here and there of this, this, you know, evil witch who is constantly wreaking havoc on the citizens of Blythe Hollow and is, of course, causing the zombie apocalypse right before their very eyes. At the same token, though, ultimately, Aggie, I, as you said, I think is a very sad case because it's ultimately about stories. Aggie's story is a story about stories, which I said story a lot and doesn't make a lot of sense, but hopefully this will clear it up eventually. 
But I guess what I mean by that is that Aggie, when she was alive, um, so, you know, she was, she lived in the, the Puritan era, and ultimately, again, it's revealed in the story that she's ultimately a victim of the witchcraft trials, and is murdered even as a child, or being a, a suspected witch because of the fact that she can see and talk to ghosts and to supernatural things and just things that other people can't see. So she has the same or similar abilities as Norman, and she was just your typical little kid. And unfortunately, she was killed because of her differences. Because the society with which she lived in couldn't tolerate her differences. So, you know, that being said, they kept pointing at her, calling her a witch, calling her evil, calling her terrible things during her trial. And, you know, hearing all of these things constantly being thrown in your face as a child, especially... And again, in, in her case, especially one who is literally look, staring death straight in the face, she ultimately, I suppose, you know, once she becomes a ghost, she has this pent-up rage within her that, which is absolutely justifiable, given the circumstances especially, but ultimately, Aggie post-mortem, started to believe the things that people said about her in life. And that being said, because she wasn't treated humanely, she ultimately decides, you know what, in the afterlife, maybe I will be a witch. And in this case, you know what, witches do in my, t in, you know what, witches do, you know what they, they think witches do, witches make curses, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to curse this town, and once everyone involved in my trial dies, I'm going to force them to constantly come back from the dead and wreak havoc among the town with which they lived in. And that was, you know, ultimately Aggie's whole origin story here but you know at the at the exact same time i think the scene between norman and non-witch aggie just her her typical form albeit as a um albeit as presumably a ghost even though she has a very you know much more human fo form than most of the other ghosts that Norman interacts with over the course of the film, but after Aggie is sort of, you know, it, it has, has been, you know, brought back into a better state, you know, Norman is able to talk with her saying that, you know, I think, you know, one of the main messages during that, that whole discussion is that two wrongs ultimately don't make a right, and that, you know, just because you suffer greatly doesn't mean that you should make other people suffer, especially if they are innocent. I mean, ultimately, the curse primarily affected 
people involved in her trial. And again, I think it's absolutely reasonable for her to want to get back at them because of just the the literal torture that they put her through in life. But at the same token, though, she also kind of got so blinded in that fact that she didn't realize that, A, she was affecting so many people who weren't direct, who weren't involved in her trial and hurting other people who were innocent bystanders, including her own relative, Norman, as well as the fact that Judge Proctor, who, um, you know, was, was, the, was the judge who, who ultimately condemned her to death, Norman was able to actually talk with him and literally he was able to finally, because of the fact that he finally had a person to talk to who could understand him and who after a while wouldn't run away from him, Ultimately, you know, he, he heard the fact that everyone involved eventually had a change of heart and that, you know, after so many years of going through this curse that, you know, they had time to think and they, real, they, they wanted to apologize at, at, to Aggie for the harm that they've caused. So whether or not Aggie, of course, accepted their apology is irrelevant. Just at the very least, the opportunity that they had because of the fact that they they wanted to to show the fact that they were sorry. Because ultimately, they thought they were doing the right thing. But in reality, they weren't. And they were just causing more harm than good. So ultimately, again, after Norman sort of talks Aggie down basically telling her that yeah i go through i went through something relatively similar to what you went through again i'm still alive of course but at the same token though it doesn't make it any less painful and yeah i do have points where i would like to make the people around me who have wronged me in some way shape or form suffer in some way but at the same token, though, I don't want to, if anything, I don't want to give in to what they think about me because I know who I am and I know that who I am is not a bad thing and that I don't want to believe the negative stories and I don't want to, that to eventually lead into becoming so blinded by revenge that I just take so much collateral damage along with me. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think ultimately it's, it's just, it's, it's a very interesting and impacting, impactful message just about the nature of revenge and revenge, forgiveness, all of that kind of different stuff. I just think that overall... If anything, Norman provided some sort of closure to Aggie, which in turn helps lift the curse, both from not only that she had ultimately put on 
the people involved in her trial, but also that she put upon herself. Because again, if anything, I think another whole angle to, to look at this is that it's, it's a sort of a metaphor for self-esteem and staying true to yourself and not giving into the negative things that other people say about you and not becoming what ultimately you never wanted to become to begin to begin with. So, yeah, if anything, I think Aggie is just I mean, every single time I watch this movie, I and you know, I I have opportunities to see just all of Aggie's scenes. I mean, it just her her whole situation just it it shatters my heart. And I feel so bad for her. And again, at the very least, I'm so glad that Norman was able to provide her with this sort of realization and this sort of closure that not only what you're doing is wrong and you're hurting people around you, but you're also hurting yourself. And I think that's definitely one of the key takeaways is that once you start believing the negativity that other people say about you, ultimately you're hurting yourself even more than you're hurting other people. And that's not, that, that, that just shouldn't fly. So yeah, if anything, I'm just, I'm thankful that Aggie finally got that opportunity to at, le- at the very least make peace with herself and therefore move on and end this constant cycle of basically self-loathing. I can't help but think that um, that uh, Aggie and, uh, I'm going to bring up Nimona here again, Aggie and uh, Nimona, they kind of have similar origin stories and, you know, how they were treated by um, by the, their respective uh, respective towns, so to speak. You know, Aggie, of course, you know, obviously done away with by the townspeople, and then Nimona, of course, you know, obviously being being a uh, being a shape shifting being, not being accepted by uh, you know all the animals, and then of course uh, at first accepted by Laura, but then you know the village rejects her for for being who she is and calls her a monster, you know, and then just just uh, how the stories kind of play out from there. It's just it's I can't help but think about the similarities that the that the, both of these characters have in, in their respective films. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. I think. There's a lot of interesting parallel, as you mentioned, between the and Nimona. And I think ultimately, you know, again, if you're if we're taking from Nimona here, Alistair has this moment with Nimona as Nimona is in her most quote unquote monstrous form. Ultimately, you know, that whole line of I see you, Nimona. Ultimately, I think, even though it's not, you know, stated in the most obvious way during the initial meeting of Norman and Aggie, at the same token, though, Norman eventually, again, even though it wasn't literally said that, even though he never literally said that, he ultimately has his own moment of looking at Aggie and seeing all of who she really is, seeing her humanity, seeing her pain, seeing, 
even you know even her wrath and you know looking at aggie as a whole and saying i see you and ultimately you know you don't have to do this ultimately to yourself because of what small-minded people think about you yeah certainly and then of course uh, you know about to say to the moto again uh norman uh uh norman of course uh you know being the uh, being the hero of this particular story and the fact that he's not he's not the he's not you know a normal kid so to speak and that kind of really speaks to the uh i suppose the tagline of the film here you don't come you don't become a hero by being normal so how so what how does it how does it like encapsulate so how does it encapsulate the message of that film like throughout the entire story how what norman went through to um to end the curse uh of the that this town has had for 300 years sure i mean ultimately i think i think ultimately if there is a very you know loud in your face sort of moral behind paranorman you know not only with the whole, um, again, the, the whole, the story on stories, as well as two wrongs don't make a right, I think, you know, the ultimate message, or at least one of the, the clearest messages, is that, you know, basically, a, a trite but true message, always be yourself. And, I mean, again, I think if you break apart this sort of tagline of, you know, you don't become a hero, by being normal. I think that ultimately it even speaks to just the nature of the hero's journey itself. I mean, the hero's journey of course is for those of you who are who might not be aware of it, is basically the format that pretty much all screenplays follow. It's, you know, this you know, the hero, the chosen one, the hero, you know, whatever you want to call them, the main character goes through this period of maybe not wanting to be a hero, but, you know, is chosen for the situation anyway, goes on, the, goes on their quest, faces multiple trials along the way, but ultimately comes to the other side triumphant and learning a lesson. And I mean, if if you want an, a uh, a uh, further explanation on that, watch uh, watch the Bluey episode Curry Quest <laughs> on Plus or Disney Junior or or uh, wherever you get your Bluey episodes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's it's one of the best ways I think this, to sum up the hero's journey. Um, but again, I I digress with all of that. Um. Bluey talk aside, I I think, you know, again, I think Norman's journey, to a degree, follows a lot of that sort of stereotypical hero's journey sort of paradigm, which I think is, again, relatively brilliant because of the fact that the film constantly juggles with the fact that they're fully embracing and yet fully rejecting stereotypes and archetypes and and parad and you know not 
and, and paradigms and just and tropes. They're basically just play, constantly playing with tropes, which just I think it, again, as I keep saying, it makes the film fascinating and a good watch because of it. Again, if you think about it, no hero is is truly a quote unquote normal kind of person. Like it, it takes an extraordinary person in order to, you know, in this case stop a witch's curse and ultimately that person happens to be norman and you know norman all of his life even though he likes talking his ability to talk to ghosts and he likes his ability to you know see things other people don't see at the same time though i mean he literally had a moment where he sat in the car in the film with his family as his dad was kind of lecturing him you know norman literally said you know it's something to the effect of you know this is this isn't my fault i didn't ask to be this way so yeah again if if you really think about it norman all of his life at least to a degree had that wish in order to be normal be the kind of person who blended in with the crowd and who fit in and who wasn't constantly called a freak every 15 seconds and wasn't given strange looks by again small-minded people so yeah i mean that being said norman had that that wish in order to just kind of fade away and not constantly be in the quote-unquote negative spotlight. But at the same token, it's this abnormal quote-unquote gift that allows him to basically become a town hero to, again, not just put an end, not just, you know, prevent the witch's curse from happening, but ultimately put an end to it by helping the the quote-unquote witch and her quote-unquote victims you know process all of their trauma and their then just everything that's been stewing and all of the nuances that have you know have essentially i guess prevented um them from moving on and putting an end to the curse for the past 300 years so yeah i mean that being said <laughs> norman i guess slowly started to realize you know as especially you know as this excuse me as this journey continues that he ultimately should embrace who he is and that it doesn't really matter what other people have to say whether or not they think he's a freak or a hero, that's irrelevant. Ultimately, Norman should just be happy with who he is and that he has these abilities that eventually really, really came in handy and helped a lot of people. And of course, you know, him being the um, being the hero of the sort he is, you know, obviously... Um, this is where the this is where um, my big brain comes in and tells me that I have not watched the full movie here, but uh, but um, but we um, but uh, obviously you know his differences um, you know made him who he is and it helped save the town and from the 
well, helped lift the curse of the town anyhow. So, uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, a great movie to a watch that one that I have, that I'm going to have to get on board with at some point here. But, uh, uh, but uh, anyway, um, two things here. Uh, Paranormal is available on a variety of video on demand and streaming ser- streaming services, of which there are too many to name here uh, within the length of time that we're that we have here. So I won't make mention of that. Just all I, have, all I will say, just Google Paranorman, and you'll probably find where where to uh, where to watch it or where to buy or rent it from. Uh, and second of all, we just pretty much threw like every like almost every single piece of media of like. <laughs> into this discussion here i brought up the pneumonia you brought up bluey and uh yeah that was that was that was something else uh so that was a nice little that was nice <laughs> hey i mean <laughs> again i i love this movie but at the same token though if, if i had an opportunity to to bring up bluey i you know i, I would <laughs> and i did i took that opportunity <laughs> and i brought up the mona too so uh so we are even steven on that here we're going to go ahead and take another break here on the Zachary and Peaches show and get into unfamiliar territory for this podcast, uh, talking about uh, ITVs this morning, and we're going to do that after the break. Coming up on the Zachary and Peaches show, what's next for ITVs this morning? Following Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby's respective exits from the troubled UK daytime program, Adrian discusses what led up to their departures and what changes could come to the show in their way. A rough year at the sofa, next. It's time for more animation. This is kind of like the, the alternate journey between Retsuko and Haida. Because finally, the man worked up the courage to ask her out, and she said yes! More autism. I've done like a I've done like a playlist slash mixtape on Spotify for it. Um, I've started a fanfic on it that's I'm trying to get um, off and running here, where Nimona's um, kind of really trying to deal with the aftermath of the events in the movie and more everything else. Do you honestly want? Do you honestly? <laughs> you, you probably know what I'm going to say. Spirit Halloween <laughs> open in freaking February, and I would not care. I could be in there all the freaking damn time. Season two of the Zachary and Peaches show. New episodes every Tuesday on most major podcast platforms.
animation, autism, and now everything else. The Zachary and Peaches Show continues. and welcome to your Wednesdays this morning. And of course, we want to start by sending our love, best wishes and respect to our Holly. Last night, Holly made what we know will have been a heartbreaking decision to leave this morning after 14 years. Holly loved her job here and was really looking forward to the future of the show. But recent events, especially in the past week, have been hard to deal with. And she's quite rightly put in her family first. On behalf of everyone here in front and behind the camera, we just loved working with Holly and she made coming to work so much fun. We're all really, really sad and we're really going to miss her. Holly said she's incredibly proud of what she's achieved on this show and so are we. She will forever be one of us. But as Holly Willoughby knows only too well, the show must go on. And we are back with more of the Zachary and Peaches show. Uh, alongside my lovely co-host, Adrianata, I'm Emma Settles, and we are getting into something completely different, uh, true to this segment's name, uh, during this episode, and, uh, Adrian is ultimately going to be talking about a little bit of the, I guess, drama, <laughs> in a sense, that's been going on uh, within uh, ITV this morning and this saga that's been going on uh, within hosts of the program and all of that kind of, of, of stuff. So again, this is another SCD segment that I don't know completely a whole lot about. So that being said, Adrian... Why don't you go ahead and take it away with uh, giving us some details about uh, what's been going on? Let me start by saying this is not the kind of territory that we would get into on the podcast. Uh, many of the uh, some of the completely different segments that we have done, uh, they've uh, they've always been kind of really we've kind of been into into almost in tune with pop culture. And sometimes we'll just kind of really extend the discussion a bit on the animated, on the animated shows and movies and whatnot. And also on our own special interests as well. Uh, of course, uh, Emma having discussed about, um, you know, Maxwell Carter, don't starve, don't start together. And, um, and uh, me talking about, um, you know, American gladiators to the best of my ability, uh, I think in July of this year of 2023, so, um, so, um, so we're kind of really entering into a bit of a tabloidish, gossipy territory that uh, that um, I kind of hesitated to talk about uh, as part of the podcast. But uh, considering that this happened within the past week, uh, and seeing that um, that I've kind of really been almost a fan of the This Morning program that was that has been broadcast on ITV for over thirty five years, uh, uh, having celebrated its thirty fifth anniversary uh, this month. Um, I'm kind of a little bit qualified to uh, discuss about this. So, um, 
So here we are, uh, Richard Madley and Jenny Finnegan first host, uh, were the first hosts of the This Morning program on ITV uh, in 1988 in the UK, and they um, and they pretty much helped steer the program, uh, you know, uh, during its uh, first several years on the air, um, and of course having launched without any publicity, but it has really, but it gains viewership along the way and became the the uh, popular program that it is today. Now, the most recent hosts of the program up until up until this year were Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby. Uh, Philip joined the program in 2002 as a main presenter, first along I think uh, first alongside another presenter whose name I can't uh, remember uh, off the top of my name, but he has co-hosted. He had co-hosted with uh, with uh, Lorraine Kelly and then with um, with um, Fern Britton. Holly Willoughby came to the program in 2009 to, to replace Fern Britton and become uh, Philip's new co-host. And they have been they have been at the top of, I guess you could say, UK daytime television, daytime talk television, in fact, for 14 years. And that came to an end uh, uh, earlier this year uh, with... Uh, with Philip subsequently resigning from ITV, uh, and that was because uh, he had an affair with a younger male colleague uh, who was working on the program at the time, and uh, and uh, yeah, so, so there's that. And then, uh, of course, um, uh, Holly Willoughby had to step away from the program, you know, initially temporarily, then but then it became permanent after um, some recent events that happened within the past several days, and that involved a kidnap and murder plot against her and uh and uh and she decided to make the decision for herself and for her family to step away from this morning um on top of that uh uh last year when queen elizabeth ii died um uh there was this hugate scandal uh that kind of rocked the uk and uh, tarnished i guess the uh the reputation of the show as well as the hosts uh when uh, philip and holly had uh, skipped the uh, skipped the queue uh, to see the queen lying in state, uh, and they had a, uh, I think, uh, and they maintained, and they and ITV had maintained that they had, um, uh, they had um, joined the queue in that manner just for, for the purposes of journalism. And uh, and Holly infamously said, "quote We would never jump a queue." Uh, fast forward a year. A year now, and both of those hosts are no longer with the program. So, so uh, what's next for the program? We don't really know what's going to happen here. Uh, of course, um, Allison Hammond and Dermot O'Leary, who currently present on the Friday editions of the program, um, they're kind of part of the rotating uh, uh, team of uh, presenters now. And then, of course, you have other presenters in Josie Gibson, Craig Doyle, and Rochelle Humes. Uh, the latter two you just heard in the uh, and the soundbite that led into this segment, so it's kind of really, it's kind of really unknown what's uh, what's going to be, um, what's going to happen with the program. Um, Holly did say that um, in her uh, letter addressing her departure from the program, that uh, that uh, Richard, Richard and Judy have said that they only look after this program and you know for the viewers and you know and you know. The, after they left, the program has, of course, continued. Uh, and so uh, there is a possibility that, of course, this morning will continue and uh, will continue with uh, perhaps a new team of presenters. Well, new, I guess, a new duo of presenters there. Whoever is going to send, we don't really know. 
could be from within the, the This Morning family or could be from outside the This Morning family as well. So, uh, so uh, the latest uh, that uh, I have heard would be that they would have these uh, new regular presenters between Monday and Thursday. Um, they would have that set by next year. We don't really know who that's going to be, but obviously that's where everything kind of really stands right now. And uh, of course, um, yeah, it's kind of really been a bit of a rocky situation at the sofa at uh, this morning. I'm just taking all of that in. <laughs> oh, yeah, a rocky start indeed. But uh, anyway, let's hope that the program can continue, uh, albeit with new hosts, and that things uh, eventually go on uh, the up and up for ITVs this morning. But... Who knows? We just have to wait and see. Yeah, and uh, you know, you know, obviously, you know, there may be the possibility that they may rebrand the program, might dispense the program altogether. I mean, it's like three hours of daytime that we have to fill if they decide to can the can the show. But um, but ultimately, you know, it's the producers, it's the executives at ITV that um, you know, pretty much they they feel they'll they'll know what's best to what's best for the program, whether whether the program can continue with with new hosts, whether it's going to be rebranded or just canned altogether. But uh but um you know Rich and Judy said it best. They only look at they only looked after the show for as long as they as long as they uh they could and uh, and of course Holly and Philip um you know looked after it for as long as they could. So now it's just you know a matter of you know it's a bit of a waiting game now as to uh what uh itv will be doing with the with this morning and you know it being such a popular being a popular program uh in the uk um i'm not uh, i'm not privy to all the uh, all the details really but um but but it's going to be very interesting to see how they're going to be handling the future of the of the show moving forward exactly we just as i keep saying we just have to keep uh we just have to we have to wait and see Yep. Well, uh, that being out of the way here, uh, that is it for the Zachary and Peaches show for this week. Um, this is, I think this is like, the, this might be the shortest, something completely different I've ever done here, considering I've only, I've done like, a, like an abridged, <laughs> a bit of an abridged history of the, of the, this morning program here. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, uh, that is it for the, per, for, uh, for Zachary and Peaches uh, this week here. Uh, Maddie Rousseau is going to be uh, joining us on the, uh, on the, on the podcast uh, next week, as we wrap up our three for Halloween series, as uh, we talk about uh, the nightmare before Christmas, as it celebrates its 30th anniversary this year. Also as part of Disney's 100th anniversary celebrations this year uh, oh that's gonna be a fun episode i mean we i mean we've only had a handful of guest hosts anyway and i mean uh so i mean this is gonna be fun having another voice in this conversation as well someone who is just as passionate if not more passionate about nightmare before christmas as i am so that being said i'm looking forward to hearing uh hearing her take on this wonderful movie and its 30-year legacy. So, yeah, we have that to look forward to next week. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to meet, to uh, continue to, 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 comp that. I'm excited to uh, 
to continue to talk with you, Maddie, and uh, especially on the air. And uh, looking forward to what you have to say about this, in, quite frankly, incredible stop motion masterpiece. Looking, I'm, and I'm looking forward to have my ear talked off uh, for the third <laughs> for the third week in a row. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, two uh, two Burton slash Selick fans just <laughs> talking your ear off. <laughs> and we're also going to be talking about Halloween Wars as well. So uh, there is no end to the uh, there is no end to the hollow to the Halloween. The, the cutesy Halloween stuff that you're going to be talking about with Maddie this uh, ne- this coming well the next week anyway. So, yep. For right now, for this week, I'm Adrian Mata, and I'm Emma Settles. We'll see you next time for the on the Zachary and Peaches show, folks. Bye. Jared Harris speaking for the Zachary and Peaches show produced, edited, and co-hosted by Adrian Mata and co-hosted with Emma Settles. The Zachary and Peaches show is a Sackland original podcast.